In the summer of 1932, the Cubs were embroiled in a close pennant race. On July 6th, they sat three and a half games out of first place. On that day, shortstop Billy Jurgis returned to his room at the Hotel Carlos and found his ex-girlfriend Violet Valley waiting for him. She pulled a gun out of her purse, and he tried to wrestle it away. In the struggle, Jurgis was shot twice. One of the bullets grazed his hand, the other ricocheted off a rib. Neither did serious damage, and he was back in the lineup in under a month. He didn't press charges against Valley, and she used the fame that comes with shooting a cub to land a 22-week nightclub contract. She was billed as Violet, What I Did for Love, Valley, the most talked-about girl in Chicago. With Jurgis banged up, William Vex signed ex-Yankee Mark Koenig for infield insurance. Koenig hit 353 down the stretch, and shortly after Rogers Hornsby was fired, the Cubs won 14 straight games and ran away with the National League. Before the World Series clashed with the Yankees, Koenig was voted only a half share of the prize money by his Cubs teammates. They voted Hornsby no share, even though he managed more than half the season. All series, the Cubs' perceived stinginess was a subject of ridicule from the Yankees, especially Babe Ruth. The jawing back and forth got heated, and Ruth was pelted by lemons from the Wrigley Field crowd. In Game 3, with the score tied in the fifth inning, Ruth had had enough. While standing in the batter's box, he pointed. At pitcher Charlie Root, into the Cubs' dugout, over the fence, no one really knows. But the next pitch was sent well over the center field wall. Lou Gehrig followed with a homer on the next pitch, and the Yankees won the game. They won again the next day and completed the sweep. Almost 100 years later, people still debate Root's called shot, but it all developed out of a different shot in a Chicago hotel room in early July. I'm Terry Bonadonna, and on this episode of Chicago's Civil War, we'll traverse the 1930s, examining a few more Cubs pennants, the introduction of night games in Chicago, and finally, coming to the end of the city's yearly postseason baseball battles. Here we go. The Philadelphia A's took three straight AL pennants from 1929 to 1931, but the Depression was weighing on them, and after the 32 season, they started selling off their talent. Over the coming years, the Red Sox would get their best players, Jimmy Fox and Lefty Grove, but the White Sox made the most immediate splash. They acquired Mule Haas, Al Simmons, and Jimmy Dykes. The names were certainly familiar on the north side of the city. It was Simmons who had started the A's 10-run rally back in 1929 with a home run. Haas was the batter who lofted the fly ball over Hack Wilson's head for an inside-the-park homer. More importantly for the White Sox, these were star players. Simmons is one of history's greatest outfielders. Jimmy Dykes ended up as the White Sox manager from 1934 to 46. His 899 victories rank first on the Sox's all-time list. The moves didn't bring instant respectability to the Southsiders, but they were a good first step for a franchise that was coming off its first 100-loss season and hadn't been competitive in over a decade. 1933 marked the Century of Progress Exposition in Chicago. It was the city's first World's Fair since 1893, and it reflected on how far the city had advanced in the intervening 40 years, while also highlighting the technology that would help the advancement of the world as it worked to get out of the Great Depression. Sports had become such a big part of life in Chicago that it was only appropriate to have a big exposition at the fair celebrating that. Arch Ward of the Chicago Tribune proposed an all-star baseball game to be played mid-season, featuring the best players from each league going head-to-head. The idea was embraced wholeheartedly. It was billed as the game of the century. Fans got to submit their votes for the player representatives for the contest that would be played at Comiskey Park, 
which beat out Wrigley Field in a coin toss. The home team was represented by two players, Al Simmons and Jimmy Dykes. The Cubs had three, Gabby Hartnett, Woody English, and Lon Warnicke. 47,595 fans showed up to see the American League triumph 4-2 behind a Babe Ruth home run. The other notable baseball occurrence in Chicago in 1933 came before the season. The Cubs and White Sox met up in a spring series. The Cubs had been training on Catalina Island off the coast of California for years. The island had been owned by William Wrigley and was well prepared to host baseball each spring. In the early 30s, the White Sox began practicing in California as well. This gave the two teams a chance to get to know each other early in the year. Outside of Chicago, there hadn't been a postseason city series in 16 years, but over the last few springs, the preseason municipal rivalries had started to resume around the country. Notably, there wasn't any money on the line in these games, and starters didn't often go the distance because they weren't fully in game shape yet, but the games were still generally taken more seriously than standard preseason exhibitions. In the words of the scribe Edward Burns, The Cubs don't like the White Sox, and the White Sox don't like the Cubs, so the fact that the athletes are playing for no purse will not detract from the spirit displayed in the impending exhibitions. In 1933, the Sox and Cubs split two games in California and then returned for two games in Chicago, one at each park. In their home city, the White Sox won both games, including a 1-0 nail-biter that was won on newcomer Al Simmons' first White Sox home run. The preseason games continued throughout the decade when weather permitted, and within a few years, the two teams began traveling together from California to Chicago at the end of spring, making stops in Arizona or Texas along the way to play exhibitions in front of the local fans. The downside, according to some, is that the spirit of camaraderie displayed between the rivals on these trips softened the dislike that we heard about from Edward Burns just a few moments ago. Fans may have felt the softening of the rivalry as attendance numbers began to dip in the mid-30s at City Series games. That's just a theory as to why attendance was down, though. Probably a better theory is that it was the middle of the Great Depression, and attendance was down everywhere. In any case, Game 1 of the 1933 City Series was pretty well attended, drawing over 14,000 fans on a Wednesday. Sad Sam Jones pitched the White Sox to victory on that afternoon, 3-2. That was as much offense as the Cubs had in them for the whole series. They didn't match the number two again. The White Sox easily swept in four games, with each of their pitchers throwing a complete game. During the regular season, they had only had a pitcher go the distance 53 times. That was actually considered a really low number in those days. 45-year-old Red Faber tossed a five-hit shutout in game two. Faber finished his career with 273 regular season complete games, but this was his first in any game since the opener of the 1931 City Series. It was his 11th career victory against the Cubs, more than any other White Sox pitcher. It was also his last Major League game. Faber pitched 20 years and won 254 times. He is far and away the franchise's all-time leader in games pitched, with 669. He was the star of the 1917 World Series, and his absence due to injury in 1919 may have cost the team another title. The White Sox roster wouldn't look quite right without Faber on it. He had been around for so long that he was first brought up in episode 5 of this podcast series. Early in episode 5. The 1933 City Series was also the end of the road for a member of the Cubs. This one on a sadder note. On October 5th, between games 1 and 2, team president William Veck died of leukemia. He was just 56 years old. Veck was known as a great innovator during his 14 years with the Cubs. He was a champion of radio broadcasts and the All-Star Game. He also pushed for interleague play in the regular season, 
an idea that wasn't realized until more than 60 years after his death. It is probable that the death of no man connected with the business end of baseball would have caused such widespread mourning. Those were the words written by Arch Ward in the next day's paper. Even Babe Ruth weighed in. He was a fighter and a great guy. If Bill Veck would have been in the Cub lineup in 1932, I don't think we'd have won in four straight games. Game two was played as scheduled per Veck's own wishes, but they did delay game four by a day to allow Cubs and White Sox to attend the funeral. After the White Sox captured the 33 city championship, they were able to hold on to it for a while. Throughout the 30s, the Cubs remained competitive annually, and so it was in 1934 when they were four and a half games out of first place on August 28th. Owner P.K. Wrigley felt that the team wasn't giving it their all for the pennant. A second place finish would have netted them a pretty good payday. Coupling that with their City Series share may have served them better than getting blown out by the mighty Tigers in the World Series. At least that's what Wrigley suggested. He announced there would be no challenge to the White Sox that year. If the Cubs players wanted postseason dough, they would have to earn it in the World Series. The White Sox and their fans were furious that the Bruins were ducking them again. It had been ages since the Southsiders had been competitive, and the annual fight with the Cubs was the one thing they had to look forward to each year. Now, here were those Northsiders refusing a series for the second time in eight years. This was yet another on an always growing list of reasons for the casual fan to pick a side. There were a lot of casual baseball fans in the city, but very few Southside supporters felt indifferently about the Cubs' unwillingness to take on their crosstown adversaries. Sensing the displeasure at the lack of postseason baseball in Chicago, the American Giants of the Negro National League issued challenges to both teams. Wrigley and Comiskey at least had the decency to respond this time, but their answers were both no. The city rivalry would have to wait longer still to resume for the exact opposite reason in 1935. The Cubs didn't fade down the stretch. They surged to a 21-game September winning streak, the second longest in history. Two and a half games out of first at the start of the streak, they had the pennant all sewn up by the time it ended. Of course, then they did fulfill the prophecy from the previous year and lose to the Tigers in the World Series. It was 1936 before the White Sox and Cubs finally met up again. After all the bad press they had received two years before, the Cubs wasted no time issuing the challenge as soon as they were eliminated from contention. For once, the Cubs weren't prohibitive favorites. They had another nice season, finishing just shy of their second straight league title, but the White Sox weren't half bad themselves. For the first time in 16 years, they finished in the first division, led by an exciting young offense. Luke Appling led all of baseball with a club record, 388 batting average, and first baseman Zeke Benura drove in 138 runs. The offense lived up to its billing in the City Series, but it was the pitching that was dominant. Vern Kennedy shut down the Bruins' bats in the opener. Though not everybody was impressed, longtime Cubs trainer Andy Lotshaw spoke out about Kennedy's performance. I've been hearing so much about what a great pitcher this Kinley or Kenmore is, and all I gotta say is that his damn curve don't break more than three or four inches, and my old Aunt Kate can throw a bigger curve than that. Several times the boys on the bench has to push me back, on account of me wanting to grab a bat myself. Without use of their 56-year-old trainer in the lineup, the Cubs couldn't do much the whole series. Just as they had in 1933, the White Sox beat their Northside counterparts in four straight games without ever calling on their bullpen. Following Kennedy, Monty Stratton, Ted Lyons, and Bill Dietrich each picked up complete game wins. Not only had they won nine straight City Series games, their starting pitchers had gone all the way in ten straight battles with the Cubs. 
One of the most notable aspects of the 36 series wasn't clear until much later. Since 1924, each Chicago series was broadcast on the radio, often on multiple stations. Most of those broadcasts, though, were sent out into the ether, never to return. To my knowledge, there's only one game of which there is still a recording. Unfortunately, that one game is kind of a dud from Comiskey Park on October 2nd, 1936. Still, I'd be remiss if I didn't at least give you a taste. Here, then, is the man who was introduced as that ace, that dean of sports announcers, a man amongst men, an outstanding man, Hal Totten for WENR, picking things up in the bottom of the sixth inning. Now the bases are full with one out of the sixth inning, and Luke Sewell, another dangerous boy with the bases, occupied out there, takes the first pitch inside and low for a ball. The infielders have moved back. That is the second baseman and shortstop move back. First and third baseman still in fairly close. He winds up once more, throws, and the hitter hits the beauty into center field for a base hit. And Galan races over to get it. One run in, second run scoring. Dyke pulling up at third base. And a shot single to center field by Sewell. Scores Manura. Scores Appling. And puts Dyke on third base. So the White Sox have runners on first and third. One off. Two runs home in the sixth inning. They're now leading the Cubs by a score of five to one, the same score by which they won yesterday. And Monty Stratton, White Sox pitcher, is coming up there to the plate. Stratton hits the first pitch, the drive in the left field for another base hit. Gill is coming down there, the runner for first going for third. Gill gets the ball, throws it into third base. The runner bound slides in, and the ball bounds out that past third base. Jurgis gets over there, gets it to Stratton, slides into second base. Ball bounded and hit the runner as he slid into third, and then as Hack stood there looking for it, Stratton called for second. Jurgis had to come all the way over to get the ball and throw it to second base, and as a result, the runners are on second and third with another run home. The White Sox went on to win that game 11 3, the biggest blowout of the series. P.K. Wrigley was fuming over his team's inability to show up against the White Sox and ordered his manager, Charlie Grimm, to put everyone on the trading block. They gave up Lon Warnicke, who had been their star on the mound for five years, as well as all-star shortstop Woody English, who had been with the team for ten years. The moves paid off for the Cubs, who had the top offense in the league in 1937. On August 1st, they held a six-game lead on the rest of the National League. More surprising is that the White Sox, with a similar record, were only five out of first at the same time. The Cubs crumbled during the final two months, going 34-29 and and finishing three games off the pace setters. As for the White Sox, it just wasn't a good time to be an American League team. The Yankees were in the midst of a stretch in which they won four straight pennants and seven out of eight. The Sox finished with 86 wins, their most since 1920, but they fell 16 games short of the Yanks. It was rare for both sides of town to boast good baseball teams, so when it happened in 1937, it should have created an atmosphere of great excitement in the city. But the teams didn't appear to want any part of it. Not the Cubs, anyway. In September, P.K. Wrigley announced that there would once again be no challenge to the White Sox coming from him. Charlie Grimm said that'd be okay with him as well. The Cubs team ended up meeting, though, and deciding to go through with the City Series. Wrigley didn't care. He didn't stick around for it anyway. In a change from tradition, the Cubs owner elected to attend the World Series, instead of staying in Chicago. When even the team owner doesn't care about the series, it's hard to drum up much enthusiasm from the fans, and sure enough, only 10,000 per game showed up, the lowest number in City Series history. Considering all that, it's almost a shame the series turned out to be so good. 
The Cubs finally knocked a White Sox pitcher out before the ninth inning and snapped their nine-game over six years losing streak by winning the opener. The series ended up going seven games. To be fair, the baseball wasn't that exciting over the week. Only games two and five were really competitive. Game two was neck and neck heading into the bottom of the eighth inning. Then the White Sox loaded the bases and Luke Sewell wrapped out a two-run single, giving the Sox the three-to-one win. The other tight contest also went to the White Sox. In Game 5, they held a 4-3 lead in the 7th inning. That's when they broke it open with RBIs from Mike Krivich and Dixie Walker. The 7th game was played in front of 12,000 fans on a frigid afternoon at Wrigley Field. The White Sox jumped out to an early lead and cruised to a 6-1 victory. It was their 4th straight city title. From 1926 to 1939, the Cubs averaged 89 wins per year. They had a winning record every season and never finished out of the first division. They couldn't catch a break in the postseason, though. Whether it was to the White Sox or the American League champion, they seemed to lose every year. That didn't mean they weren't capable of some late-season magic. On August 20th, 1938, they were nine games behind the Pirates in the standings. Then they went 21-5 in the month of September. On the 28th, they hosted Pittsburgh just a half game back of the league leaders with six games to play. More than 34,000 fans arrived at Wrigley Field for the afternoon affair, a massive crowd for a Wednesday. The game was a real doozy. The Pirates scored three runs in the top of the sixth inning to capture a 3-1 lead, but the Cubs quickly responded with two runs in the bottom of the frame. In the eighth, Pittsburgh again went up by two runs, but the home team came right back and tied it with two runs in the bottom. It was 5-5 at the start of the ninth inning, and it was also starting to get dark. Charlie Root retired the side quickly in the top of the ninth, and the clock on the scoreboard showed 5.30. The sun was due to set at 5.37. The umpires gathered together and agreed to play one more half inning. If the Cubs didn't score in the bottom of the ninth, it would be a tie and would be replayed the next day. The first two batters were retired easily, and the Cubs' last hope was Gabby Hartnett, future Hall of Famer, now 37 years old and no longer a full-time player. He took two straight tosses in the zone that were hard to see as darkness fell. Then on the 0-2 pitch, he took a swing. I felt it was gone the second I hit it, he later recalled. The ball soared out over the left center field wall and the Cubs were victorious 6-5. You know a home run is truly great when it gets its own nickname. Hartnett's has one of the best, the homer in the gloaming. The Cubs moved into first place for the first time since early June. They held on and took the pennant. That was the last great moment of those Cubs teams from the 30s. They were swept in the World Series by the Yankees, the second time Joe McCarthy had swept his old ball club. The next year, the Cubs didn't contend, and in 1940, for the first time in 15 years, they finished with a losing record. For all their winning during that stretch, they didn't have a World Series to show for it. The best they could hope for now was to finally beat the White Sox consistently. The continued dominance of the Cubs is all the Sox could hope for. After their brief flirtation with winning baseball in the mid-30s, they fell back below 538. They didn't go back to the depths of the early decade, but they weren't consistently competitive again until the 50s. One of the White Sox's best finds in the 1930s was pitcher Monty Stratton. In 1937 and 38, he combined to win 30 games, and was only 26 years old when he went home to Texas for the offseason. Over Thanksgiving, he was out hunting by himself when he accidentally discharged his rifle and hit himself in the leg. He crawled the half mile back to his home and was taken to the hospital from there. 
His right leg had to be amputated, and he never pitched in the majors again. He did eventually return to minor league baseball, though, artificial leg and all. A decade later, Jimmy Stewart portrayed him in the Academy Award-winning movie The Stratton Story. The week before the 1939 season was to start, the White Sox and Cubs scheduled a Stratton Day exhibition, in which the injured pitcher would be given all proceeds. Naturally, the game was rained out, because that's just the way these sort of things tend to go. It was rescheduled for May 1st, though, and this time it went off without a hitch. Almost 26,000 fans showed up, and $28,000 were presented to Stratton and his family. The White Sox won the game 4-1. That July, J. Louis Comiskey, the White Sox owner, died at the age of 53. He had battled health problems for years. In his eight years running the team, Comiskey hadn't had a lot of on-field success, but his effort was unquestioned. He put a lot of his money into trying to improve the team. The same wasn't generally said about his wife, Grace, who took over. Grace was much more frugal with players and coaches, which made the White Sox struggle to return to regular contention a little bit harder. One of the last decisions Lou Comiskey made was the installation of lights at Comiskey Park. The first night game in Chicago Major League history took place on August 14, 1939, less than a month after Comiskey's death. The lights were on again on October 4th when the City Series commenced. The series' popularity had been waning, but the excitement of the night game brought it back. 42,767 fans were present to see a whale of a ball game, a back-and-forth slugfest between the Sox and the Cubs. Bill Nicholson hit a two-run homer in the top of the ninth for the National Leaguers, sending the game to extra innings. In the tenth, an Augie Galan RBI single wrapped up a 10-9 Cubs win. There had been a real festival atmosphere at the Southside Park for the opener, but they didn't repeat it the next day. In earlier editions of the City Series, the two sides flipped a coin to determine home field advantage. They would then alternate home games. Since the early 30s, they had abandoned that and gone to the World Series schedule with a 2-3-2 format and the two leagues alternating years. That meant that the White Sox got Game 2 at home as well, and they decided to hold it in the afternoon. Only 6,000 fans showed up. Those few who were in attendance got treated to a vintage Ted Lyons performance. The 38-year-old Sox ace was coming off his best season in more than a decade, and he put an exclamation point on it with a complete game win, evening the series. That was the only White Sox bright spot early on. The Cubs won Game 3, and Hank Lieber's three-run walk-off homer in Game 4 gave the Northside Club a 3-1 series lead. In all the World Series that had been played to that point, there had only ever been one comeback from 3-1 down. But the White Sox had done it to the Cubs twice, including the incredible rebound from 3-0 in 1912. And that's not to mention the improbable come-from-behind Tide series in the best of 15 in 1903. Surely the Sox couldn't do it again, right? Okay, who am I kidding? You know where this is going. The Cubs led 5-0 in the fifth inning of Game 5, and the series seemed to be all wrapped up. But Mike Krivich's two-run sixth-inning homer put the Sox on the board, and they rallied in the eighth inning to tie the score at 5. Some guy named Norm Schluter picked up the game-winning hit in the tenth inning. Schluter only ended up with 55 total hits in his career, and this was his only one in the postseason. It crippled the Cubs. They had no fight left over the final two games. Ted Lyons threw his second complete game of the series in the finale, and the White Sox were victorious in seven. For the second time in four years, P.K. Wrigley seethed over the results of the series and demanded that changes be made to the Cubs. They were. Until now, the Cubs had gone on a great run of success, but starting in 1940, 
they would finish with a winning record in only three of the next 27 years. They had been in the habit of winning a pennant every three years. That stretch ended, and they captured just one more over a span of 86. The White Sox took advantage of the Cubs' hard times. 1940 was the first time that the Sox outdrew the Cubs since 1925. The introduction of regular night baseball certainly helped. For what it's worth, the Cubs elected to install lights two years later, but when the United States entered World War II, Wrigley decided to donate the construction materials to the war effort, and Wrigley Field didn't see lights installed until 1988. The city of Chicago reaffirmed its fondness for night baseball in the 1940 City Series. It was the National League's turn for home field advantage, and the Cubs attracted a total of 16,000 fans to the opening two games. Game 3, played under the lights at Comiskey Park, drew 39,000. Ted Lyons started the opener of the 1940 series for the Sox. His opponent was Claude Passeau. The most well-known moment of Passeau's career is probably the 1941 All-Star Game, in which Ted Williams hit a three-run walk-off homer against him, the most famous home run in All-Star history. In fact, though, Passeau was an excellent pitcher with the Cubs throughout the 40s. He tossed a one-hitter in the 1945 World Series and appeared on four All-Star teams. In years past, Charlie Root may have been Lyons' opponent. Root had been with the Cubs since 1926 and pitched in 19 City Series games. He had locked horns many times through his career with Lyons or Red Faber. Now 41 years old, he was still on the roster and would be for one more year, but he made only one more City Series appearance, a brief relief outing in 1941. As for Lyons, at the age of 39, he was almost as good as ever. He had begun to slow down a few years earlier, so manager Jimmy Dykes eased his workload, deciding to pitch him only on Sundays. Sunday Teddy, the White Sox ace became known as. From ages 38 to 41, he averaged 13 wins per year and had a sub-3 ERA. After the 1942 campaign, he joined the Marines. He was older than draft age, so he could have stayed with the White Sox but with no wife and no kids, he felt it was his responsibility to go overseas. Lyons spent three years in the Marines, never seeing any combat. He rose to the rank of captain, and after the war, he returned to the White Sox and started five good games at age 45. He was prepared to keep pitching, but when he was named manager, he decided to retire from playing and focus on the managerial job. He named Red Faber his pitching coach. That gave the coaching staff 514 combined wins all of them in a White Sox uniform. The two men were more successful as players, however. In three years as coaches, they were 60 games below 500. Lions won game one of the 1940 City Series, going the distance and picking up an RBI single. The series went back and forth and was tied at two when the two sides met under the lights for a game five thriller. Trailing two to one in the top of the ninth, the Cubs evened the score on a Hank Lieber sacrifice fly. Then in the bottom of the inning, Julius Salters came up for the White Sox with two on and two out. He laced a single to center, scoring Mike Tresh. The White Sox were victorious 3-2 and had a 3-2 series lead. Game 6 just happened to be scheduled for a Sunday, and old Sunday Teddy was ready to go. He got off to a rough start, falling behind 3-0, but he hung in there, and his teammates tied it up. In the top of the 10th, Joe Cool and Luke Appling picked up RBI hits. Lyons finished off his complete game in the 10th, and the White Sox were city champions for the sixth straight year. The Cubs won 8 of 14 preseason games from the White Sox in 1941, but in May, they decided to trade seemingly all of their best players to Brooklyn. 
Billy Herman, Larry French, and Augie Galan all went packing and helped the Dodgers win the pennant. Gabby Hartnett had departed after 1940. It felt like the end of an era for the Northsiders. But not the era of losing to the White Sox in the postseason. That continued. The Sox mopped the floor with the Cubs in the annual City Series. Trailing 1-0 in the ninth inning of Game 1, they rallied for four runs and a victory. They weren't challenged the rest of the week in what turned out to be a four-game sweep. The Sox had the worst offense in the league during the season, but behind star Southpaw Thornton Lee, the best pitching staff. They put it to good use in the series, but it was all starting to feel a bit routine. With one exception, in the fifth inning of Game 3, the White Sox turned a triple play, the only one in City Series history. Other than that, it all felt too familiar. The White Sox had been dominating their crosstown foes for years, but the 1941 series wasn't even close, and it was the seventh straight the Pale Hose had won. There was just as much pre-series hype as there had ever been, but the game excitement was flagging. In 1942, there was a real possibility there would be no City Series. Heck, there was a real possibility there would be no baseball. Once the U.S. entered World War II, many baseball fans were reminded of 1918, when the sport shut down for the war. But on January 15, 1942, President Roosevelt sent a letter to Judge Landis requesting that they keep playing for the good of the country's morale. Even with that settled, there was no guarantee the Cubs and Sox would meet. That season marked the first time since 1921 that both of Chicago's teams finished with losing records. It was the Cubs' turn to challenge, and they waited until well after both teams were out of the race. In mid-September, team captain Stan Hack held a vote. The Cubs decided to issue the challenge. The series opened at Wrigley Field in front of a crowd of less than 5,000. Ted Lyons threw a shutout for his 10th City Series win. Six of them had come after his 38th birthday. The White Sox jumped out to a 3-0 series lead, but for once, it looked like the Cubs might finally get their revenge for all the comebacks that went the other way. They won the next two, including a 10-inning affair in Game 5. The White Sox put a stop to the surge in Game 6, winning easily to capture the series. And that was that. The White Sox win in the 1942 City Series was the last postseason battle between these two teams. No formal announcement was made. There was no ceremony. They simply didn't play each other in 1943. And then, they never did again. There would be other meetings, pre-season and mid-season exhibitions, for instance, but they never again met in the bitter postseason feud that had enthralled the city since 1903. Soon, nobody was talking about it anymore. Within a few years, it was as if the city series had never even been a part of Chicago tradition. Next time, we wrap this whole sucker up. On the final episode of Chicago's Civil War, the City Series may be over, but the rivalry between the Cubs and White Sox is not. We'll take a look at the many exhibitions played between 1942 and 1997, and how they compared in intensity to what had been played before. I'll also put a bow on the City Series with some final facts and figures, and learn about where this city's baseball feud has gone in recent years. If you've enjoyed the podcast up to now, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts for the next person who comes along. I'd appreciate it. You can leave a review if you've hated it, too. Either way, I thank you for listening. I'll be back next week. <laughs>